We had a great retreat this weekend. Josh Redberg preached for us. Josh is from North Carolina. And um, so what time is North Carolina's game next week in the Final Four? Oh, that's right. They lost. Um, <laughs> you know, um, I've noticed, I've been here for like uh, almost four years now. There's some significant divisions in this church. Non-essential divisions. You know? And so with apologies to the Hokies and the Patriot fans, go who's. Come on, come on. UVA, that was a great game last night. But on a more significant note, we had a great retreat this weekend. And uh, Josh Redberg did the preaching for us. I think the thing is I've interacted with him, he's most passionate about is his wife of 18 years, Carrie, and his three boys, Jack, Max, and Cade. And he's here this morning with his dad, Dave, who was with us on the retreat. He's just, he's a great dad and a family man. He's also uh, served pastorally at churches in Michigan, Illinois, North Carolina, and now he serves as a pastor for preaching and development at Redeemer Community Church, which is just outside of Raleigh. And um, he's also the author of two very approachable commentaries, one on 1 Samuel and John, that are available in the bookstore if you're interested in purchasing them. But he's, he, I met Josh uh, last October. We, Vince and I were visiting a, a conference of one of the networks we're considering being a part of Pillar, and I sat down on a bench, and we just started talking, and he had been at a conference at Covenant Life years ago, and uh, then uh, the leader of Pillar Network, as I was looking for someone to lead the men's, or teach at the men's retreat, recommended Josh to me, and I called him, and I didn't realize he was the same guy I'd been speaking to at the conference. It was the Lord's divine appointment, and um, it's just been really neat to work with Josh in planning the uh, men's retreat, because... You know, one of the things as a pastor, it's just really great to have friends like in the same kind of heart. Josh is a missional guy. He likes, he loves making disciples. He loves the local church and he loves planting churches, the things that are really in our DNA as a church. And so as we were planning the retreat, it was just such a great partnership where his ideas are flowing. And, and I really thank him for all the ideas and the creativity as well as his teaching that he brought to the retreat. It was a significant part of the grace that we experienced this weekend. So thank you, Josh, on behalf of all the men here. So we're grateful to have him with us. Uh, I, he's, he's a good friend now and uh, looking forward to developing our friendship in the days ahead. Let's welcome Josh as he comes. You know, what Kenneth doesn't realize is I'm a Duke fan. So. Just kidding. I would never do that. It is, a, it is a joy to be with you. It was just a delight to spend time this past weekend with the men. As Kenneth mentioned, when we met at the Pillar Conference this past fall, it's a, it's a group of like-minded churches and like-minded brothers, and it was neat to be able to walk in this weekend and just sense that immediately, that this church reminds me of the church I have the privilege of serving at, and so it's just a joy. It feels like home in that sense because the Spirit of God that's in you and the way that you work and you minister and you serve and you worship, um, it is, it is, it's comfortable in a good way. And so it has been a privilege. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. I wonder, have you ever been hypocritical? <laughs> uh, one Sunday morning a couple years ago, I was sitting 
in the service with my family when it came time to take the Sunday offering. And so I had a check in my pocket. And I handed it to my oldest son so that he could put it in the offering plate when it came by. I liked to do that so that they could be part of giving. So I, I take the check out of my pocket. I hand it to him. He just reaches over, grabs it, opens it up, takes his gum out, puts it in the middle, closes it, and puts it in his pocket. I'm like, well, what are you doing? It's supposed to go in the offering. And he looks down, and then he starts trying to peel it, and there's gum in it. He's like, oh, I, I thought it was for my gum. I was, I was just instantly annoyed and aggravated. Now I'm going to have to avoid this check. I'm going to have to write a new check next week. But here's the worst part. I was about to get up and preach on anger. <laughs> that was my topic. And I'm sitting in my seat getting angry at my son. You know, hypocrites come in all shapes and sizes. But the worst type of hypocrite is the loud and preachy one. Like the guy who would get angry with their child and then preach about how evil it is to be angry with your children. So have you ever been a preachy hypocrite? Have you ever scolded people for the very same mistakes that you keep on making? You know, there's no honor in being a silent hypocrite, but there's greater harm when your hypocrisy is loud and forceful. You know, Jesus' most famous sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So in chapter 5, he begins by showing how obedience to him begins in the heart. It flows out in love for him and love for others. And starting in chapter 6, he focuses on hypocrisy. He reveals how easy it is for us to do religious actions, like praying and giving and fasting with wrong motives. He primarily focuses on how we act outwardly pious in order to impress other people. Well, he returns to the subject of hypocrisy at the beginning of chapter 7. Hypocrisy left unchecked will always lead to arrogant judgmentalism. We will not only pretend to be something we're not, but we'll condemn others in the process. The point of Jesus' instruction in Matthew 7, 1 through 6 is simple. Be merciful, not judgmental. This passage divides easily into two parts. In the first part, Jesus condemns hypocritical, arrogant judgment. Let's look at verse 1. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. Now, if there is a more misunderstood, misinterpreted, misapplied verse in all of Scripture, I'm not sure what it is. Because anytime a person makes a judgment that people don't like, this is the verse. That people, they wield it like a weapon against their critic. But is Jesus really making a blanket injunction against all forms of judgment? Because if so, he contradicts himself just five verses later. When he tells us to avoid giving valuable truth to those who are dogs and pigs. And he contradicts himself again in verses 15 and 16 when he says, Beware of false prophets and judge a false prophet by their fruit. So Jesus here in verse 1 is clearly not telling us to avoid judging at all times and in all situations. So I think we can learn a very important lesson about biblical interpretation from the misinterpretation of this verse. Never interpret a verse without studying the context. In fact, we probably should stop talking about interpreting verses and we should start talking about interpreting paragraphs. Because the meaning of any single verse is found in the paragraph in which it's located. And Jesus says much more about judging than verse 1. 
And what he, what he says clarifies what the command in verse 1. Jesus is condemning a certain type of judging, judging that is hypocritical and arrogant. Now, we all judge. It's impossible not to judge. Not only is it impossible, it's foolish. My sons have been studying World War II. They've read about Hitler. Should they make a judgment about him? What about the rape of Nan King? Can I tell them it was wrong for 200,000 Chinese to be raped and slaughtered? Let's make it more personal. Let's say I stole your car. You know it, and I know it. But since you don't judge, you feel powerless to say anything to me. After the service, I come up to you and ask you to borrow the keys to your other car. Do you let me borrow them? I think you have to, right? Otherwise, you'd be judging you judging me? Well, of course you are, and you should be. Right? Don't let me borrow your keys, the keys to your other car. Like Jesus is not making this blanket statement on all judging. In another passage, Jesus commands us to judge. In John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judge in that context is an imperative verb. It's a command. Jesus is commanding those listening to him to judge with right judgment. The Apostle Paul goes a step further. He says judging can actually be a sign of spiritual maturity. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says the spiritual person judges all things. We could look at many other passages, including passages given to the church, commanding the church to judge sin and to remove members living in unrepentant sin. Jesus is not commanding us to refrain from all types of judging or evaluating, critiquing, discerning. He's condemning an attitude of judgmentalism that's fueled by arrogance and hypocrisy. So to understand exactly what type of judging Jesus is forbidding, we need to get a better grasp on how the hypocrites functioned. So let's find here three realities about hypocrites and how they view others. First, hypocrites have no interest in mercy. They have no interest in mercy. Look at verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We love to pronounce judgment. I think this is one of our favorite sports. How many times have I wished I were a police officer when a car goes flying by me? I'm just going to be honest. A lot. Every and the only reason I want to be a police officer in that moment is so that I can give that person a ticket. I, 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 just, I would like to write them a ticket. How about the person who put tire tracks in my front lawn? Like, arrest them. What about the person a couple years ago who used my credit card number to buy $400 worth of products from H&M? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Listen, I was not pro-death penalty until that happened. Then I was like, yeah, let's do it. Fry him. Like my, my thirst for justice isn't limited to those who commit crimes. Referees. Oh, man. Salesmen, coworkers, family members, anyone who crosses me, anyone who disagrees with me, listen, my native tongue is not mercy. It's justice for other people. See, but my, my thirst for judgment reveals something about how I see myself. Because I see myself as someone who doesn't need mercy. 
Because if I saw myself as someone who needed mercy, I would be far more likely to extend it to others. Hypocrites have no interest in showing people mercy because they don't recognize their own need for mercy. There's an important test of genuine Christianity in these verses. Genuine Christianity is revealed when we show mercy to other people. If we judge and criticize people for their faults, we demonstrate a shallow understanding of mercy. The person who doesn't understand mercy doesn't understand the gospel. And instead of receiving mercy, they will find only judgment from God. Do you see this? If you don't show mercy to other people, verse 2, but instead your life is characterized by judgmentalism, you will be judged by God. Don't misunderstand. It is not saying we earn mercy by showing mercy. Our showing mercy reveals that we've received mercy. If you're critical all the time, I wonder if you're a Christian. Those who've experienced the mercy of God will show mercy to others. And we all need mercy. Listen to what James says in James chapter 2, verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak... And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what he's saying. Unless you perfectly obey God's law, you need mercy. And the law of God is summarized in two commands. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you perfectly obey those commands? No. If you're not sure, you think, if you're like, maybe I do, after the service, I'd like you to give me all your stuff. And if you're unwilling to, then clearly you do not love me as much as you love yourself. God has two laws, and we break them constantly. We break them all the time. We're lawbreakers. And so here, our only hope is mercy. And listen to verse 13 again. For judgment is without mercy, to the one who has shown no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. It's beautiful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And how does mercy triumph over judgment? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is the fulcrum, which tips the scales from judgment to mercy. The cross is the bridge, which spans the chasm of judgment and allows us to safely walk across. And that's why a sure sign of genuine Christianity is a merciful disposition to others. Unlike the hypocrites, we see ourselves as fully deserving the judgment of God and apart from the triumph of mercy being hopeless. And if we see ourselves as needing mercy, we will show mercy to others. The farther we get from the cross, the easier it is to be judgmental. And that's part of the reason we gather together each week. I I love to see this. I love churches gather I don't think there's anything more beautiful than what I've seen this morning. You gather each week with other Christians to rehearse this gospel. Because every week, you need to be reminded that mercy triumphs over judgment through the work of Jesus. Every week. It is the cross of Jesus which kills our pride and arrogance. It puts our silly sanctimony to death. It reminds us we deserve judgment, but... 
the mercy of Jesus triumphed. The beginning of the sermon that Jesus preached in chapter 5, verse 7, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Are you merciful? Or are you judgmental? Those are the options. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Have you experienced God's mercy in your own life? Hypocrites have no interest in mercy. Second, hypocrites are blinded by pride. They're blinded by pride. So in verses 3 through 4, Jesus gives this laugh-out-loud description of a man who's attempting to perform delicate eye surgery. And the only problem, imagine this, imagine you've got something going on with your eyes and you're going to go meet the surgeon who's about to perform surgery and he walks in and he has a two-by-four protruding from one of his eye sockets. Like this is the picture Jesus is saying. Look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? So what really blinds the hypocrite is not his own sin as much as his own pride. He cannot, he will not see his true condition. Most of our problems can be traced back to pride. Most of our sin can be traced to a wrong estimation of our own goodness. The word hypocrite that Jesus uses refers to an actor on stage. So it, it describes a person who appears to be one thing when they're really something else. A hypocrite is a liar, a deceiver, and often they've lied and deceived themselves. Imagine the depth of self-deception necessary to not notice a two-by-four sticking out of your eye. Like, how could someone be that blind? Surely someone has said something to them at some point, right? Like, they have to have, if they're married, they have a spouse, or there's a friend, somebody who's like, you got something, sticking out of your eye. But here's the thing, due to our pride, we refuse to listen. Like God has spoken through his word. He gives us other Christians to speak into our lives so that we're not blinded to our condition. But pride is a lot like wax in our ears. Like it hardens and it hardens until we can no longer hear. Who are you listening to? Like, who speaks into your life? How would you even know if you had a two-by-four sticking out of your eye? See, here's what we say. Well, I would know. I would know. I mean, I, I would know if there's a two-by-four sticking out of my eye. You know, King David was called a man after God's own heart. Yeah, he commits adultery, and then he kills the man in order to cover it up. And for more than a year, he refuses to acknowledge it. He refuses to repent. I mean, there is a two-by-four sticking out of his eye. Then the prophet Nathan comes to him, and he tells him a story in 2 Samuel 12. And the story is about a rich man who stole a lamb from his neighbor. He killed the lamb, and then he served the, the, the lamb for dinner. The rich man had many lambs, but he didn't want to use one of his own, so he stole this man's only lamb. Well, David hears the story and he grows irate and he says, that rich man deserves to die. He was the rich man. He stole the lamb. Like his pride has blinded him from seeing the two-by-four sticking out of his eye. And here he is willing to condemn someone for something far less. Never underestimate 
the insidious nature of pride. Pride so blinds us that we will preach against things others are doing when we're doing something far worse. That we will say the man who steals the lamb must die when we've stolen a man's wife and his life. You know, I've seen this firsthand working in churches. The people who complain, the people who complain about what is or is what is what is not happening in the children's ministry don't serve. The people who complain about the budget don't give. The people who complain about the music refuse to sing. And so this is what we do. Our pride so blinds us to our our vision that we, we criticize others for the speck in their eye when we've got a piece of lumber sticking out of our own. Here, here's a question I've found helpful to expose pride in my own heart. Do I accuse in others what I excuse in myself? Do I accuse in others what I excuse in myself? So I rationalize it. I give reasons why it's okay, why it's not a problem, and at the very same thing when someone else does it, I'll accuse them. How dare they do that? Like that's hypocrisy fueled by pride. The third thing about hypocrites is hypocrites harm instead of help. I mean, how can you help someone when there's a beam sticking out of your eye? You're going to either smack them in the face or you're going to poke their eye out. This is why judgmentalism is such a significant problem. There are victims. I think one of the things that's so galling to us is when we hear about medical malpractice, right? Because someone is injured or someone is killed by the person who's supposed to help them. And, and here's the thing. When we judge people with this attitude of arrogance, that it hurts them. It injures them. It does damage. It obscures the gospel. The reputation of Jesus is, is, is damaged along with the other person. I find it fascinating that no specific examples of judging are given in this passage. Jesus doesn't say, well, now pay particular attention to these areas. Like these are the specific areas where you're going to be tempted to judge people. And I think the reason he doesn't give us specific examples is because we would be tempted to limit it to those examples. So the lack of examples teaches us that every single area of our lives is an area that we're, in which we're prone to arrogance and judgment. Like there's no safe zone. That we have this amazing ability to turn anything into a reason to criticize and condemn another person. So we'll criticize and judge people for how they parent. Now I've noticed this. We're especially prone to do this before we have kids. And as soon as we have kids, we realize, like, we have no idea what we're doing. And we'll take anything, any help. We'll criticize where people send their kids to school. We'll judge people for their political positions. I remember an older Christian man sitting in my office years ago and saying, I don't know how a person could be a Christian and vote, and then mentioned a party. Literally, just with one sentence, he wiped out 50% of the country and said, they're not Christians. We judge people for how they spend or how they save, usually depending on whether we're a spender or a saver. Right? We, we, we will even criticize people for doing the opposite things. We'll look at two guys and we'll say, oh, that guy's too busy. Oh, that guy's too lazy. And maybe the worst type of criticism is gossip where we'll criticize people behind their back. 
but in front of other people. I don't know if you've ever driven a golf cart on a golf course. But what you'll find, and especially when you're young and you first do this, you'll find to your great disappointment, they have something on it called a governor. It's, it's the worst thing because it, it, it only allows you to go so fast. Like the, you, you push the pedal down, but you get up to a certain speed and it just, that's no faster. Like you want to go faster. You, you want to punch the pedal. But this governor only allows it to go so fast. Here's what we need, brothers and sisters. We need a governor on our tongue. We need a governor to limit what we say about people and how we say it. And that governor is love. Love should limit how fast our tongues move and how rapidly we criticize before you talk to another person. Before you talk about another person, before you even mention them, ask yourself, is this comment motivated by love? If not, then don't say it. Because when our speech is governed by love, is not governed by love, we will hurt people instead of helping them. And so Jesus spends the majority of this passage condemning this type of hypocrisy that's, that sort of works itself out by just judging other people. But the, he ends the passage by giving us a command. He commands humble, active mercy. So there are two commands in this passage. The first was in verse 1, judge not. But notice the second is, command is in verse 5 where he says, take the log out. So he commands us, don't, don't just stop arrogant judgment, but show mercy. So how do we show humble mercy? First, mercy begins with repentance. Jesus says in verse 5, first, first. The very first thing is to recognize your own sin, your pride, your arrogance, and deal with it. Mercy comes to the person who is broken over their sin. You will not show mercy until you receive mercy, and you won't receive mercy until you understand your desperate need for mercy. So the first thing, the primary thing, is to address your own sin. Have you ever done this? You cannot be a Christian unless you've repented of your sin and received the mercy of Jesus. And so let me invite you this morning on behalf of Jesus. Jesus says, come, come to him. He invites you to come this morning before you leave and receive mercy. And so if you're not a Christian, do that. That's the very first. The, before you can do anything else here, you just need to do this. Come to Jesus. Receive mercy for your sin. If you acknowledge your sin and you turn from your sin, you will find mercy. No matter how big the sin is, whether it's a two by four, a fence post, a steel beam, like the mercy of Jesus is big enough to cover it. I love what Richard Sibbs wrote centuries ago. He said, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. In fact, I have that on a big canvas in my office right across from my desk because I need it. I need to see that. Every day there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And so the way to grow in mercy is to think often and deeply about the mercy you've received in Christ. In Micah chapter 7, verse 19, we're told that our sin has been buried in the deepest part of the sea. The deepest part of the sea is called the Mariana Trench. And you realize that there is a part in the Mariana Trench where you could take Mount Everest and you could submerge it and it would go so deep that there would still be over a mile of water between the Mount Everest and the top of the sea. Uh, it's as if God's saying, you see that, that your sin is like that mountain. 
and, and I, can, I can bury it in the sea where you would never see it again. And this is how we grow in mercy. We think about what, the, how deeply God's mercy has changed us. One of my heroes is named John Newton. He was pastor in England about 300 years ago. And his, there's a collection of his letters that he wrote to others, and they, they drip with mercy. They just, they just drip with mercy. He wrote a number of songs, most famously, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. If you know anything about his story, John Newton was a slave trader. In fact, he worked in the slave trade for so long, he actually had his own slave ship. He was the captain of a slave ship, so he would lead a group of wicked men to, to go to another country, another continent, and there they would round up people. They would take them from their homes, and they would take them and sell them as property. Those that made it, because many of them died in the ocean. I mean, just, just a, a level of wickedness that is almost hard to comprehend. Well, God, in his grace, showed John Newton the mercy that comes through Jesus Christ, and he, he repented of his sin. He received the mercy, and, and God transformed his life. And what he said at the end of his life, I've never forgotten. He said, I have forgotten many things, but there are two things I remember. I am a great sinner, and I have a great Savior. You see, this is what the gospel is telling us, that the mercy of Jesus leads us to repentance, and once we repent first, then we'll show mercy to others. So mercy begins with repentance, and repentance comes from seeing and understand the mercy that Jesus offers. But second, mercy helps those in need. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite, first, there it is, repent. Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So I don't know if you've ever had a problem with your eye. You know, maybe you got something stuck in it. Maybe you got poked in the eye. No matter what happened, eye problems are obvious, right? You, it's, it's just hard to hide them. When something's wrong, your eye turns red. And we look in people's eyes, and so we see it. You, you just can't hide it. Maybe your eye's bloodshot. Maybe it's puffy. And it says, when you see this problem, this discomfort, you see something going on in your brother or sister's eye, don't turn away from them. Help them. Now, Jesus is not telling us to function as a self-appointed Gestapo, where we're like walking around, always on the lookout for other sin. Like we don't walk around with a microscope. We're, we're searching for the slightest speck of sin in someone's eye. Like we're, we, don't, we don't develop a network of informants to let us know about other shortcomings. We just spend time with our brothers and sisters. And when we do, we'll notice some redness, some puffiness. We'll see them squinting. Maybe they're blinking a little more than normal. And when we see that, in love, we'll ask them if we can help them. Can we help you take care of that problem? Something's going on. Can I help? It's not loving to see your brother or sister with an eye problem and refuse to help. And so Jesus tells us to be merciful. Act in love. If you're ignoring a brother and sister in distress, that's not an act of love. That's an act of selfishness. Now I imagine someone in here might be thinking, Josh, I can't help someone. You don't understand how deep I struggle. I, like, I, it would be hypocritical of me to try to help them because of my struggles. 
at least if that's your attitude, let me just say this. You are exactly the person to help them. Who better to help someone? Someone who knows the same struggle. Who better to show mercy than someone who knows their own need for mercy? Your struggle with sin does not disqualify you from helping others. Your struggle with sin is what makes you helpful. The only thing that disqualifies you from helping others is a refusal to admit your struggle with sin. In fact, your own struggle makes you very sensitive to the signs that someone else might be struggling. Every time I purchase a car, I have the same experience. Everywhere I drive, I notice the make and model of my car. So the car I'm driving right now is a Saturn View. If you had asked me about the Saturn View a couple years ago, I don't think I would have had any idea what you were talking about. I, I wouldn't have known that there were others around, how frequently they can be found. Now that I own one, I see them all the time. And so I, I think one of two things has happened. I'm assuming a lot of people heard I bought one and thought, <laughs> clearly that's a cool car. I should buy a really old car that's not made anymore too. <laughs> or more likely, I noticed them because of my experience with one. I own one, so I, I see them now. I was blind to them before. I was oblivious to them before. They were on the road. I just didn't see them. But now that I have experienced one, now, now I see them every time I pass one. See, it, it's your struggle with sin that uniquely qualifies you to notice someone else's struggle. It uniquely qualifies you to see the signs of someone else's struggle with the very same sin. And so don't let your own need for mercy cause you to sit quietly while another brother or sister suffers. Your need for mercy equips you to be a conduit of mercy to them. So it begins with repentance. It helps those in need. And third, mercy is still discerning. It's still discerning. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So in this verse, a pig is, it's more like, a, think, a wild boar. And a dog, that's not a pet. That's a pack of wild dogs. Both are dangerous. And it's saying pigs don't want pearls, and dogs don't really care whether you've sacrificed the meat to God. They just want the meat. Both are likely to attack the person in front of them. Sometimes our efforts to show mercy will be met with scorn, They'll be met with a ridicule. It's possible that when we go to share the mercy of God with others, that they will seek to hurt us. And in those moments, Jesus encourages us to use discernment. So if we share the gospel, the pearl of great price with a person, and that person, they understand it and react violently to it, Jesus says it's okay to move on. Now this instruction, it raises a lot of questions. So how do I know when to move on? How do I know if I should persevere? What are the signs? And here's the thing. Jesus doesn't give us the answers. That's why we need discernment. Discernment that comes from having our minds trained by the word of God, by being sensitive to the spirit of God. Now it's important to note this. That Jesus speaks about not judging for five verses and only allots one verse to this situation. And that probably says something about where most of us are likely to struggle. Most of us will struggle far more with arrogant judgmentalism than we will with sharing the gospel too often with those who mock, ridicule, and lash out. But even if we do end up having to move on 
from sharing the gospel with someone. We don't do so in anger or hatred. We don't mistreat them. Remember, this command comes within the larger context of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has already told us to shine as lights because of our good deeds and to love our enemies. And so the most powerful witness to a mocker is often a silent, faithful one. You know, criticism is not a Christian virtue. Judgmentalism that's born out of arrogance and hypocrisy is anti-gospel. Yet, if we're honest, we find it very easy to do. It's easy for us to criticize. It's easy for us to judge. It's easy for us to condemn. How do we prevent this attitude? I think the best defense against a critical spirit is seeking first the kingdom of God. Do you realize that's the passage which leads up to verse 1? Seek first the kingdom of God. People busy with the kingdom have less time to judge. You know, when the television is turned on in my house, it's almost always turned on to sports, much to my wife's delight. Doesn't matter, it could be basketball, football, golf, baseball, like we, we watch them all. No matter how often I watch sports, no matter who I watch sports with, I've noticed this consistent pattern. Those of us sitting in our living rooms are quick to criticize those in the field. We sit in our recliners with little ability or desire to play, and we criticize those who are actually playing the game. In fact, we're, we're far more critical of those playing the game than those who are actually playing the game. So, brothers and sisters, if you find in yourself a critical spirit, if you're quick to judge others, get busy serving God and sharing the gospel. The best way to kill criticism is by rehearsing the gospel as you tell others about the mercy of Jesus. Nothing drives a stake through a critical heart like the cross of Jesus. You know, this world does not need more fans who criticize from the stands. The world doesn't need more referees who are ready to call fouls. It needs more men and women in the action. Seek first the kingdom of God. First. Seek first the kingdom of God, and as you do, you'll be too busy, too broken, too tired to criticize others. Remember, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Father, help us. We know that this comes, mercy comes only as you do this work in us. And so we, we will, by your grace, give effort to be merciful. But we do know this, that our, even our effort, much less our mercy, is dependent upon your grace. Lord, we know that you who have called us to yourself through your Son, you did so in mercy. And so it is our confidence that as we, as we seek to diligently be merciful, actively merciful, that you will strengthen us for this. You who did not spare your own Son but gave him freely for us, how will you not give us all things? And Father, we ask you to give us hearts of mercy. I pray this for my brothers and sisters. In your name, amen.